Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome back to the Beeson Podcast. Well, today we have an opportunity to listen to a lecture by Dr. Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes is a name that will be known to, I think, a number of you. He's written numerous books. He's the editor of Preaching the Word series of commentaries on uh, really every book in the Bible, uh, author of Disciplines of a Godly Man, and with his wife, Barbara Hughes, uh, Disciplines of a Godly Family, many other books. For more than 41 years, he was a pastor of a local congregation. For 27 of those years, he served as the senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton. And during the first decade of Beeson Divinity School, we invited him here to campus to present our William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching. And we'll get to listen to a sermon from Dr. Hughes in the next sermon episode on the Beeson Podcast. But today, we're going to listen in as he talks about sermon preparation, what it takes to get ready to preach the Word of God, uh, the disciplines of a godly pastor in the study. So all of you who are either preachers yourselves or who on a regular basis listen to preachers, which I hope is all of you, then I think you'll find this uh, sermon very enlightening and maybe something you want to share with your own pastor or with friends involved in the ministry. Let's listen to this wonderful expositor of God's Word, a great Christian, a great leader in the Lord's Church today, Dr. Kent Hughes. Well, having been here since Monday, I can honestly express my appreciation for the extraordinary hospitality shown me here from Dean George and his many kindnesses and conversation, Richard Wells and our conversation, our mutual heart for preaching the Word for the students, Fine question and answer time last Tuesday and uh, Wallace Williams class. Even had some students take me out to dinner. That was great. Some local pastors this morning and then a remarkably gracious and cheerful secretarial staff here. I also want to express my appreciation for the existence of an annual lectureship on preaching. I keep track of the evangelical landscape and the theological landscape across the country and the world. There are the Beecher lectures at Yale, but they're not annual anymore. It's been fascinating to me how you have schools of the prophets with no annual lectureship on prophecy. And so I want to congratulate you on that. Long live the William E. Conger lectures on biblical preaching. It is Great, and I think says great things for the school. It's been wonderful to be here and see what's going on. It is a given that the sufficiency of preaching rests upon the sufficiency of study. And so the lecture this morning is on study and the sermon, more specifically study and biblical exposition, because that is what I do. And so we're going to talk about this whole matter under the headings of before the study, in the study and around the study, those prepositions. And whereas I preached the opening lecture, sort of, 
This will be more of a lecture, a little slower, because of all of the things that we're going to be talking about in this matter of the study and the sufficiency of the study for preaching. Now, as best I can determine, about 95 to 97 percent of my preaching is biblical exposition. So that means 3 to 5 percent of my preaching per year is then topical or otherwise one, two, or three sermons a year that are otherwise. Sometimes I do a series which is topical exposition, like, for instance, the 18 chapters in Discipline of a Godly Man. But my life has been given to the exposition of the Word of God. And from what I've been able to tell in my travels around Chicago, the environment that I'm in there, my occasional uh, trip to a different part of the country, is that biblical exposition has fallen on hard times, that it's not common fare wherever you go. And I'm probably talking about experiences you've had. You've probably had an experience like this where you've gone to a church, you, you've sat down, there's been some fine singing, there's been the reading of the scripture, it is a magnificent text, the pastor stands up to preach, he alludes to the text and never returns to the text. Many of you have also experienced listening to a series of sermons, perhaps at a camp or you've been somewhere for a week or two or uh, uh, a time of vacation where you've heard several expositions and they all end up sounding the same. Whatever passage the pastor takes, it starts to sound the same. And the reason is, perhaps you've reflected upon this, is that he has sort of a, a rabbinical accretion of scriptures, a rabbit track of scriptures, and no matter what the text is, it always ends up on John 3.16 or Revelation 20. There's also a sermon that poses exposition. It remains within the parameters of the text. It even quotes it occasionally, but it never really deals with the text in its context or the text of the whole book. And in reflection, there is no rigor, there is little thinking, and there is no work. So it doesn't take the Word of God seriously. It is exposition, which is not exposition, putative exposition. And then preaching, which views the text through a certain lens, is likewise has the same problem. Say if it views the text through a patriotic lens, or a therapeutic lens, or a social lens, so that one sermon, regardless of the text, will be coded in, say, political chauvinism, always wrapped in the flag somehow. Or perhaps, no matter where the text is and what it's preached, it always ends up uh, characterized by an emphasis on wellness. You sort of find yourself reclining on a therapist's couch every Sunday morning. Or on a one-string political issue. Well, biblical exposition, what is it? When the biblical text is prayerfully interpreted in its literary context by the classical canons of hermeneutics, lexical, syntactical, literary, historical, sociological, theological, and its main theme is discerned, 
When that theme is first understood and applied in its historical setting, before it's applied today, in other words, it always goes through Jerusalem before it comes to Birmingham. And then the theme and idea is priests utilizing the literary structure of the passage as a guide for the structure of the exposition and the outline. And that exposition is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit first applies to the soul and life and ethics of the preacher, and then the preacher preaches in the passion and power of the Holy Spirit. That is, to me, biblical exposition. And so you have to believe in preaching to do exposition. What we believe about God's Word is important, and I won't go through all the things I said in the initial lecture, but I will quote Paul again where he says, I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present the Word of God to you in all its fullness. That is a mandate for biblical exposition, to present the Word of God in all of its fullness. And then the Pauline dicta, about giving yourself to the reading, the teaching, and the preaching of the Word, to correctly handle the Word of God, to preach the Word, to be in season and out of season. Now, having said all of that, let me say that biblical exposition today is harder than ever. I don't think it's ever been more difficult. People don't listen the way they used to listen. Uh, many church attenders Listen to the preaching of the Word of God the way the people on the flight from Chicago to Birmingham listen to the aircraft safety instructions from the stewardess. I mean, when I left Chicago, I think it was a 737, I don't pay much attention, I don't remember a thing that the flight attendant said. And that pre-flight talk has to be one of the worst feelings of rejection in our culture today. <laughs> Frequent flyer rejection. Do you listen, honestly? Papers go up, people turn to their seatmates and be began to talk. Others shut their eyes or their eyes glaze over. Do you remember the last time you really listened to the flight attendant? I heard of one of flight attendant who was so exasperated by the inattention that she changed the wording to when the oxygen mask drops down, apply it to your navel and continue to breathe normally. <laughs> and she said, the terrible thing is no one noticed what she said. A year ago, I was on a Southwestern Airlines flight, and I had the flight attendant of all flight attendant. Uh, she began to rhythmically bounce up and down to the melody of the Beverly Hillbillies, and then she recited the whole thing in rhyme and got an ovation, by the way, from those frequent flyers. Because the Word of God requires listening. And that is a skill which is impaired by modern culture. We are surrounded by billions of words. Uh, the ubiquitous television and radio and VCRs, words all around us. We are a distracted people. Much has been made of our postmodern culture, but it is true. 
that people generally today will truly become quiet or only become quiet when they hear a self-directed, subjective, feelings-oriented message. I know how to get it quiet at College Church. Start telling a story. It's about something inside of me that relates to something inside of the people, and it will get quiet. Because therapy engages the postmodern heart and theology passes by unheard. So it is difficult to preach God's word today. And that's why many congregations look like the sleepy 6.30 a.m. flight from Chicago to Birmingham. It is difficult. But let me say that preaching is also exalted. In a conversation with uh, Peter Jensen, principal of Moore College in Sydney, uh, where my own son, William Carey, by the way, attends, Peter Jensen said to me that properly understood that preaching is the highest of intellectual endeavors. And I tend to agree with him, and I don't think it's self-serving to agree. True, it's not brain surgery. It's more exacting than brain surgery. It's not rocket science. It's more subtle than that. Because when you think of it in its full orb, to say, in to borrow and baptize Aristotle's categories of rhetoric, logos, ethos, and pathos, to take the word of God, the logos, or the rhema of God, to take all of that, to understand it, the infallible revelation of God, To understand how it applies to culture and then apply it is a massive work of the mind. To take it and apply it to your ethos, what you are, so that it goes through your personality, so that ethically you represent it to the best that you can, so that it is true in your life, requires a great engagement of the soul and then to preach it with passion, the pathos, to have it so fill you by the power of the Holy Spirit that you preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, the dynamics of the logos, ethos, and pathos in the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, is the highest of endeavors. And so those are some of the things that you think of before you come to the study. But then you come to the study, and this is sort of the hands-on section of this lecture. What do you do in the study? Well, let me say the first thing that ought to be done in the preparation of the Word of God is prayer. Now, what I do is I spread out the text in front of me, and I say to myself, I may not know what it says, I may not understand what it says, but God, you do. That's where I begin. And I humble myself before the text. And I often recount the promises to God's servants. Exodus 4, 10, and 11, where you have Moses saying, I have never been eloquent. And God chastening him and saying, I'll be with your tongue and I'll be with your servants. You can count on me. Or Jeremiah, the first chapter where he says, where Jeremiah says, I'm only a child, and God says, say not I'm a child. 
Or 1 Peter 4, verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as it were the oracles of God and praying. So one of the ways I define preparation for the exposition of the Word of God is that preparation is a 20-hour prayer. And indeed, it is for me. That's first. The second thing is cracking the text. And that is the hardest thing that I do. Um, I begin this way. I take my English Bible. If I'm in the New Testament, I take my Greek text. And I take a legal pad, and I put those three things in front of me and clear my desk of everything else. And then I read and I reread that text and I read it and I reread it again and I read it out loud as I try to comprehend what it has to say. Now the reason I don't open any other tools to begin with is first of all, if I do, I cripple my originality right off the bat. Now I have some good things to say about some commentaries and some qualifications about that, but if I go any other way, I don't think as I ought to think. That I don't have that raw exposure to the Word of God that is so bracing, and I do not read and hear God as I ought. And so I always begin that way. And I have to say that oftentimes I'm humbled, because after an hour or two I turn to the commentary and find that my IQ is about three points above a plant. But that's how I always begin. None less than the eminent Karl Barth gave this advice. The Bible is like a love letter and should be read in the same way. If the letter is written in a foreign language, the lover will need to decipher it with the aid of a dictionary. But he will regard the toil of translation as an irritating delay to the reading of the letter, a necessary evil. And he will certainly not imagine that he is reading the letter while he's translating it. Therefore, and then he puts it in um, uh, formal religious King James uh, terms in the translation, if thou art a learned man, take care lest with all thy erudite reading, which is not reading God's word, that thou forgettest perchance to read God's word. Great word from Bart. And so I spend my time going through it, trying to crack the text. It is the hardest thing I do. And of course, when and if I discover the theme, then it is to look at it from a literary point of view and see what its divisions are, still not yet picking up a commentary. And after I've done that, then to think of biblical parallels, to recall all the cross-references I can from my own knowledge of the Bible, to consider insights that would come to me fresh from the text. For instance, just a few weeks ago I was preaching or studying Luke 12, verses 22 through 34, which is against worry, and I realized that worry is a proleptic sin. It's a sin which lodges itself 
in the future. It's taking tomorrow's burdens and laying them on top of today. And so I, I got that insight. It formed a lot in my homiletic thought. I think of all analogies I can possibly think of. I think of all applications that I can, and I run my mind through categories. What does this mean to the man in the pew? What does it mean to the woman in the pew? What does it mean to teenagers? What would it mean to the widow or the single or the single parent or the ill or the person who's depressed? I'll think of it in all of those categories. And then lastly, illustrations. Having done that, I still haven't touched a commentary. Then I type it out, several pages with some room to take notes, and I open my commentaries. Now, let me say that commentaries, at the same time, need to be respected, and they need to be disrespected. What arrogance to dispense with commentaries. I remember an old friend from seminary said he put all the commentaries aside. All he needed was his lexicon. Well, it sounded like he preached from a lexicon, too. At the same time, what foolishness to dispense with commentaries. Uh, on the other hand, the mistake of over-reverencing commentaries. I understand you had Etta Linnemann here this last year. And, of course, I don't have to explain who she is, uh, eminent uh, Boltmanian of past years, uh, a woman of uh, great erudition, her double doctorate, her habilitationsschrift in hand, coming to Christ and writing of, of uh, the historical critical method as it had been practiced by her and some of her colleagues, she says, historical critical theology is hindered by ignorance since a theologian generally is only aware of those small parts of the Bible which he regularly studies in keeping with a widespread tendency to specialize. As a rule, he knows numerous books that deal with his area of interest, but he does not know his Bible. And that's from a very... Uh, respected member of the Academy of past years in Germany. But you do go to commentaries. I'm working through the Gospel of Luke right now, and so my, my commentaries, the chain of commentaries, the catena of commentaries that I go through are Howard Marshall, Joseph Fitzmeyer, John Nolan, Leon Morris, uh, J.M. Creed, Earl Ellis, Friedrich Godet, David Gooding, and others. So I read my commentaries, and oftentimes I'm caught up short, and I'm corrected, and I'm always enlightened. After that, I go to my file for illustrations, and I collect and file virtually everything I read. Some of you, I'm sure, in a setting like this are polymaths, but I'm just a preacher, and I can't remember everything I read, so everything I read is filed, and everything I read is cross-indexed. Then after that, with all of that in hand and gathered, I write my sermon. Early years, I preached with few notes. As the years went by, I preached with more notes, and now I manuscript what I do. Why? Clarity. 
Uh, for me, there is a canon which is clarity is style. A mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. If I really don't understand it and I really cannot explain it in plain, simple English, it is probably because I do not understand it. And so there's a sense in which I read myself full, write myself clear, and deliver myself empty. That words are important. Deconstructionism aside, words are important. I think of, uh, of Churchill considered perhaps the greatest orator of this century, and, and phrases like blood, toil, sweat, and tears, or blood, how's it go, sweat, tears, and toil. Well, he knew how to line those words up, and I'm aware that if you took, for instance, sweat and you substituted perspiration, it wouldn't be quoted today. It was those strong nouns prayerfully getting it down. And then, still in the study, I prepared my sermon Saturday afternoon. I mowed my lawn or whatever I've done on that day, and Sunday morning comes. We have two services at College Church, one at 9 and one at 1040. I get up every Sunday morning at 4 a.m. This is after some 25 years of preaching, I get up every Sunday morning at 4 a.m. I uh, shower and shave, obviously, have my breakfast, have my prayer, am in my office at 6 a.m., and there with my manuscript in hand, I pray over it. I do not memorize it, but I ingest it and pray over it and ask God to apply it to my spirit so that my soul, my ethos will represent the reality of what I say so that when I stand up, I passionately preach God's truth from the heart. And so two, two and a half to three hours with my sermon before I step out in front of my congregation. And then, as I preach, I pray. Do you know that you can do that? You can talk to yourself while you're preaching. You ever done that? Lord, why is uh, Dr. Scott turned all the way around backward while I'm making this point? Is there something wrong with my exegesis? You can talk to yourself, and you can pray. And I pray as I preach, and I have people praying for me. So before the sermon, or before the study, in the study, and then some thoughts about the study or around the study. Every pastor ought to have a fine library. Uh, when I take my car in to get it prepared by the local, my personal mechanic, uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is how many tools he has on the wall. I would be concerned about a mechanic shop where I went and there were no tools about the kind of job I was going to get. And so I believe that a pastor's library is important. Now, I, I say this without any... Uh, I say it because I want to make the point that I, that I practice what I preach. I have a library of 
about 4,000 volumes. And when Dr. Packers preached at my church, he said to me, so this is the finest pastor's library that I've seen. Not the finest library, but for a preacher. And so I have all of the lexicons. I have a, a vast collection of commentaries, probably 60 on the Book of Romans alone. I have all the dictionaries. I do the best I can with the abilities that I have to have the primary sources available, and I think every pastor ought to have at least the Loeb editions of Josephus and Philo and the Apostolic Fathers. I have about 80 volumes of the Loeb Library, Tacitus, the Papyri, Eusebius, Herodotus, Polybius. I have a full set of the Babylonian Talmud, probably the book that uh, is most thumbed outside of my lexicons in my Bible and itself is my uh, Mishnah. I have the standard sets of theologies all the way back to uh, Augustine, to John Owen, to Karl Barth. I think every pastor ought to have books about books in their library, annotated bibliographies to save you trouble. I read the book reviews of many of the seminaries. One of my great things in my day off is to go down to Barnes & Noble and get a cup of Starbucks coffee on Monday and get the New York Times book review. I have my devotions in that. Not really. And then this whole matter of a pastor in reading. Thoughts about the study. First of all, I think that every pastor ought to be, as Spurgeon said, in his knowledge of the, of the English Bible, so knowledgeable that the very blood that is bled is bibline. Uh, when, I, when I look at people who can preach with power, I see one of the constants is a great knowledge of the English Bible. Now, if you have the kind of mind that knows the Bible and the Vulgate, knows the Masoretic text, knows the Greek text, great! Well, I, I can work through those things, especially the Greek, but my knowledge, my best knowledge is the English Bible. For some reason, God still speaks to me in English anyway. And so to read and reread that English Bible. Lewis has a great statement when trying to account for the brilliance of John Bunyan. He said, we need to understand that the Bible itself is an education. And it is. And so you think of Bunyan with his Geneva Bible, his Fox's Book of Martyrs, and Lewis Bailey's Practice of Piety, and he writes one of the great classics of the English language and preaches with power the Word of God. And so we need to be people of the book if we're going to be preachers of the book. And I think you can mark this right on from Bunyan through Spurgeon to the great preachers of our day like Lloyd-Jones. It is that being full of the Word of God so the Word of God informs the Word. And then pastors need to be readers. Uh, the editor for Tyndale House, uh, editor-in-chief for Tyndale House, Wendell Holly, is a member of my church, and he travels all around the country. And he said, he says to me, Pastor, he said, I am amazed at how little pastors read. 
And it could be shown in sales and books. He said, I am amazed. Well, when I, as far as reading, I probably read 150 pages in commentaries and that kind of literature in preparation, probably each time I preach. But I read outside of theology and those things. And so in the last year, year and a half, I've read, uh, I'll just list them. Uh, Jaroslav Pelikan's Bach Among the Theologians, uh, P.D. James' The Sons of Men, Arthur Schlesinger's Arrestus Brownson. Uh, I reread uh, Boswell's Life of Johnson, and then Schlesinger's The Disuniting of America, and Russell Baker's two volumes, Growing Up in the Good Times, and Kingley, Kingsley Amos's memoirs, and uh, John Richard Newhouse's Freedom from Ministry, and Donald Carson's and John Woodbridge's Letters Along the Way, and um, John Edison, A Study in Spiritual Power. By the way, that is the man who discipled, led John Stott to the Lord and discipled him. His famous Bash, B-A-S-H. Frederick Beekner's novels, Ann Wilson's Eminent Victorians, Daniel Borston's Discoverers and the Creators, and uh, just finished last night, and he proves the shipping news. I say that because uh, reading widely leaves you in touch with culture and where people are. And so those that are called to preach the Word of God are, have a mighty calling. A calling, I think, which is as daunting as any calling there is in today's culture. Time? Well, after all these years, it's still about 20 hours for a morning exposition of God's Word. When I preach Sunday night, about another 10 hours, a huge investment of my time. But I've had a saying that I lived and died with over the years, is that if you don't control your time, someone else will. And so I do. And so I want to leave you with a great challenge that preaching the Word of God is as grand a call as one can have. In the last century, Alexander White imagined that the angels are envious. He wrote to a discouraged preacher, the angels around the throne envy you, your great work. Go on and grow in grace and power as a preacher of the gospel. The turn of the century, Phillips Brooks in his uh, great landmark lecture on preaching said this, that in a world where there are a great many good and happy things to do, God has given the best and the happiest and made us preachers of his truth. And in our own century, the great W.E. Sangster, the Methodist pastor of Westminster Central Hall in London, across from Westminster Abbey, uh, the man who led my boss elder to Christ in World War II, thrilled at preaching, saying, called to preach, commissioned of God to teach the word, a herald of the great king, a witness of the eternal gospel. Could any work be more high and holy? To this, the supreme task, God sent his only begotten son, in all the frustration and confusion of the times, 
Is it possible to imagine a work comparable in importance with that of proclaiming the will of God to wayward world? It is a great call. May we fit ourselves to that call, to the glory of God, sole Deo Gloria. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.